welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Earlier this month, Elon Musk sent shockwaves through Wall Street, the automotive industry, and the tech world when he announced on Twitter that he was considering taking Tesla private. On Friday night, he put an end to the whirlwind that ensued in a blog post where he said he would keep Tesla public. Joining me is Peter Henning, former federal prosecutor and professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, what do you make of the unraveling of the Go Private plan in about 18 days? Well, I don't think there was that much of a chance that he would take Tesla private, given the, the, the kinds of companies that we've seen who are taken private have positive cash flow and a growing business. Now, Tesla's business is growing, but it has been burning through cash uh, over the last couple of years, and they can't even seem to hit some of their targets for production. So... Uh, you know, w- w- was this a-, a likely possibility? Even though Musk said that he could have gotten the funding for it, I really think it, it was doubtful that uh, going private was ever really going to happen. The SEC is investigating Tesla and Musk's going private tweet, plus other things. Will this decision not to go private have any effect on the SEC investigation? Well, it may uh, have some small effect in that the urgency of the investigation uh, likely is going to be dialed back. Tesla is not going to be taken private, and so there would be a number of fundraising issues related to that. But it certainly doesn't end it, because the impact of his initial tweet back on August 7th drove the stock price up a little over 10%. And you had a number of investors that day who were trading on the basis of that statement, specifically the the funding secured um, statement that he had there, which indicates that the going private was pretty much of a done deal. So I don't think the SEC is going to say, well, you know, never mind, um, <laughs> to quote Emily Latella from long ago, that it you, you don't get a do-over on this when you put that kind of information out and it has that kind of an effect on the market. And certainly driving the stock price up 10% is a significant effect. You worked on market manipulation cases while you were an attorney at the SEC. So is this likely to end in a fine or something more? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the SEC could pass on it, or um, there are ways for the SEC to send a signal. For example, they could issue a report of investigation criticizing the company. If the SEC were to pursue an enforcement action, proving market manipulation is difficult because you have to prove that the defendant's purpose was to affect the market price. And I suspect Musk and his lawyers could offer any number of reasons he made the statement, one of which he talked about, which was transparency. I just want to let shareholders know, and I didn't mean to manipulate the price, whether he did or not. So I'm not sure if it would be a market manipulation case. It could be a more standard 10B5 case, Rule 10B5, which prohibits uh, misstatements or omissions of material fact. And that might be the basis for a case, although even there, that's not really an easy case to make because you have to show the defendant's intent or at least recklessness. 
So this still leaves the questions that were being asked before the going private tweet, some of which have been now amplified by Musk's behavior and his tearful interview with the New York Times. What's one of the top concerns there? Is, is it getting a CFO in, involved? Well, I, I do think there's a, a, an important corporate governance issue at Tesla that if you're going to talk about taking a company private, and especially if it's a large shareholder like Elon Musk, then there's certain things you have to go through. Tesla is a Delaware corporation, and so you would have to get independent directors and conduct some type of negotiations and make it at least look like um, more typical arms-length negotiations. The company did none of that. And so uh, I think from a corporate governance point of view, they really need to rethink uh, how they are operating, that you can't have important information tweeted out. And there needs to be a bit more of a deliberative process, which probably means Mr. Musk is going to have to give up some of his control over the company and actually listen to the board of directors. So from what we know about him. How likely is that? Well, I, mean, I, I <laughs> it seems like Tesla a, is Musk, and Musk is Tesla. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Although you know, it, it, when you're talking about a business that is trying to mature, um, you know, there, there are any number of businesses that are tied to the founder, but then you need to move beyond the founder. Apple's a good example of that uh, with Steve Jobs. That you know, there was all the concern that when. Steve Jobs died, the company wouldn't do anything. It's now a trillion-dollar company. And so if uh, Tesla really wants to move forward, they can't be subject to the uh, whims, shall we say, of Elon Musk or, or his statements. They need to put in a little bit better um, management team, and that may mean getting in a, a stronger CFO, a stronger chief operating officer, someone who's going to let him be the visionary for the company, but not the day-to-day manager of the company. Peter, what about the company's cash position, which you mentioned before, and also its ability to meet mass market produced goals, which it hasn't been able to? No, and it's the old phrase on Wall Street, I think, has been um, under-promise and over-perform. And in a lot of ways... uh, Tesla has been doing almost the opposite, where you know they say, well, we're going to produce this many vehicles, this many vehicles, and then they don't do it. Um, so they're going to need to, um, you know, to get their public statements in line with their actual operations. And that's what Wall Street's going to want to see. I, you know, certainly, uh, investors, um, and there are a number who are devoted to the company, but some investors, I think, may have lost... Uh, or, or questioned his credibility going forward. All right. Thanks so much, as always, Peter, for your insights. That's Peter Henning, professor at Wayne State University Law School. As he faces legal threats on several fronts, President Trump continues to lash out at Attorney General Jeff Sessions, scaling up attacks on Twitter over the weekend. Speaking with Fox News last Thursday, the president once again complained about Sessions recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Even my enemies say that Jeff Sessions should have told you that he was going to recuse himself and then you wouldn't have put him in. He took the job. And then he said, I'm going to recuse myself. I said, what kind of a man is this? 
Joining me is Ellie Honig, a former federal prosecutor and special counsel at Lowenstein Sandler. Ellie, Trump has been seemingly trying to bait Jeff Sessions in tweets and interviews for more than a year. It hasn't worked. But when they have a meeting in the Oval Office after that inflammatory interview on Thursday, nothing is said when they're face to face. What do you make of this? So one of the president's primary misunderstandings seems to be this notion that the Department of Justice and the Attorney General work for him personally, Donald J. Trump. But in fact, the Department of Justice represents the American people, and the Attorney General's job is not to protect the president's best interests. And the president's been struggling with that ever since he took office. Um, and this battle of words is really unprecedented. Uh, it, it, it's stunning as somebody who worked for Department of Justice for eight years. And, and as you noted, it's sort of, I think what often happens with bullies is they, they, they're, they talk one way, uh, you know, behind someone's back, but then when they're face-to-face, they back, they back down. So I don't know what the president's ultimate end goal is, but that could be what's going on. Well, now it also seems that there are a few senators who are falling in line, and Trump quoted from mm-hmm. one of them, Lindsey Graham, in his tweet on Saturday, every president deserves an attorney general they have confidence in. So is it likely in your uh, mind that after the midterms we might see Trump fire Jeff Sessions? And then what happens? Is that a constitutional crisis or not at that point? Unfortunately, I think it is likely. I think all the signals are there. I mean, the president cannot have possibly have signaled this any more clearly. Look at his whole string of tweets attacking the good sense and even the sort of manhood, I guess, of Jeff Sessions. So I think that's pretty clearly evidence that he intends to get rid of Sessions. And if he does, are we going to have a constitutional crisis? No, I don't think so. I think we're going to. Have, I think it's going to be problematic. Um, I, what would happen then is the president would get to a point in acting attorney general who would fill in the role pending senatorial approval, and I think the first order of business of that person will be to do the president's bidding to at least oversee, and I would hope not any more than that, the Rosenstein and Mueller investigation. So I think that is the game plan, and I think we're seeing signals of that not only from the president's own words, but also, as you said, from members of Congress. Senator Jeff Flake said yesterday, the concern is that Sessions' termination would be the first domino to fall in the Justice Department's investigation into Russian interference. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I do think so. I think, it would, I think it would set in motion the president reasserting, through his newly chosen attorney general, reasserting control uh, over Mueller's investigation. And I think the more he does that, the more problematic it is. I think it remains to be seen. His options would range from have the new person shut it down, uh, perhaps even as a precondition to the appointment, to anywhere to you know keep a close eye on it, monitor it, and let's make sure it doesn't go a direction that concerns me. I think either of those is problematic, but to different degrees. So we've seen this assault on Jeff Sessions in, in tweets, etc., for more than a year. But it, it seems that a real trouble for Trump right now is my, the Michael Cohen plea and investigations in the Southern District of New York, where the U.S. attorney, also appointed by Trump, also recused himself. But Trump doesn't seem to be seeing that as as much of a betrayal as the Sessions. I, I suppose he doesn't see it perhaps as quite as much of a threat. Um, right, though, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District did recuse himself, and as with the Department of Justice, the number two guy, the deputy U.S. attorney, has taken over. Ultimately, I guess I'm given some faith by the fact that you can't fire the entire Department of Justice. You can't fire the entire Southern District of New York. Um, I think that independence will ultimately prevail. And um, I'd also add that 
there's now evidence that uh, reporting that the New York State Attorney General and the District Attorney of New York in Manhattan uh, are looking at presidential, uh, you know, potential issues for the president as well. And there, there's nothing the president can do to derail those. Ellie, how much does the attorney general, let, let's just take it away from this and just say another attorney general, another investigation, how much say so do they have in the Southern District's investigations? Uh, it's interesting. Technically, the Southern District is, <laughs> more than technically, the Southern <laughs> District is part of, of the United States Department of Justice. I, I laugh because I, I work there and people used to call us the Sovereign District of New York. And, right. and that's a reflection of the fact that the Southern District is historically fiercely independent. And, and I think that will prevail. Um, like I said, you, you can't fire the entire Southern District of New York. Um, I think the Southern District is going to do what it's going to do. So in some ways, they're, they're, that independence, I think, is a good thing and, and may make the Southern District even more of a threat than, uh, than Maine justice itself. Let's talk about some of the immunity uh, deals that were reached that we found out about. Well, first of all, we know that Michael Cohen made a deal and and said the you know in court some uh, rather inflammatory things. But we also had um, American Media Chairman David Pecker um, making uh, getting immunity and Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump Organization. Now, where do you see those fitting in to the Mueller probe? Uh, so immunity, first of all, is, is sort of a, a version of cooperation. It's where uh, the prosecutors want to speak with an individual witness who may have some level of criminal exposure, but not quite enough exposure or not enough proof to, to have that person plead guilty to a charge. So immunity is, is a, li- a bit more limited, but enables prosecutors to get the testimony from those individuals. Uh, it, it's clear that, what the, to me, what the Southern District is doing is circling around these allegations of campaign finance reform that Cohen pled guilty to, count seven and eight. Of, of his plea, uh, Weisselberg obviously is involved in, in those payments, and so is uh, Pecker. So I think that's where the Southern District's focus. Where does it overlap with Mueller? Remember, the Southern District is part of DOJ, and, and uh, you know, based on my time there and based on history, there's pretty free sharing of information. So if, if the Southern District develops information or a cooperator that's relevant to Mueller, I would have every reason to think that would be shared uh, across the line. Let's turn to Paul Manafort for a moment, because the talk of Trump granting him a pardon keeps coming up over and over again, especially in light of some of the comments that Trump made after the um, Manafort guilty verdicts. What what do you see as the result, if, if there were a, a plea agreement, if there were a pardon given to Manafort, where would that lead? We have about a minute here. I think, first of all, I think he's quite likely to, to grant that pardon. He's been signaling it not just during the trial, but before the trial. He sent tweets saying, oh, he's, he's Manafort's a good man, and this is a sad day. Uh, unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, depending on your perspective, the pardon power is very broad and has almost never been challenged. I do think that if, if, if there was proof that, that the president pardoned Manafort to prevent him from cooperating, you could have an obstruction case there. But he's already laid the foundation to say, no, it's not because I was trying to keep him quiet. It's because I felt bad for him and I felt it was unjust. Maybe somebody disagrees, but I'm the president and I have very broad pardon power. So I do think it could go that way. And I don't think there's a heck of a lot that could be done to counteract it. Well, we shall see. That's always on our list here of things to talk about. Thanks so much, Ellie. That's Ellie Honig. He's a special counsel at Lowenstein Sandler. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.